Welcome to Dear School Psych Sister, the podcast. This is your show host, Kiara Fulmore, and I am a proud school psychologist. This podcast is dedicated to helping women of color navigate the field of school psychology. On our podcast, we will have invited talks and open dialogues exploring various topics within the field. Our podcast serves as a knowledge sharing tool to help women of color as they grow in their practice. Here on Dear School Psych Sister, the podcast, we believe that our collective wisdom can support our overall well-being. Thanks for tuning in, and we hope that you enjoy the show. All right, everybody, welcome back to Dear School Psych Sister, the podcast. We have a special guest here today, and I will let her introduce herself. Hi, everyone. Um, my name is Selena Waite. I am a licensed school psychologist in North Carolina, um, but I am a licensed clinical mental health counselor and a licensed psychological associate. And I open, I own a small group practice in Durham, North Carolina, where I do a variety of school psych work. I do psychology work and I do counseling. Awesome. Well, we are so glad to have you, Selena, because I know there's a lot of women who are just wondering what they can do with their master's degree in school psychology. And they're also wondering about just the general process of starting private practice, because I know for me, I'm like, okay, I'm okay with going back to school, but I know not everybody is okay with going back to school. And we want them to be able to leverage their specialist degrees. So I yeah. want to invite you on for a conversation because I knew you were a specialist level clinician. And I have questions. So I know they have questions. <laughs> well, I'm happy to answer. Awesome. So if you were just starting to talk to us about, you know, your how you obtained your degree, what inspired you to get into school psychology first, and then go into what inspired you to go from, you know, maybe the schools to private practice in that journey. All right. So um, <laughs> my journey into school psychology is kind of embarrassing. Um, I had no idea what a school psychologist was. I thought we were guidance counselors. So I wrote my letter of intent saying that I wanted to be a guidance counselor and they accepted me at ECU. And my first day in professional school psychology, they started explaining what a school psychologist was. And I was like, what? Uh-huh. <laughs> what are we doing? <laughs> Wait a minute. <laughs> That's yeah. a easy story though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But I I love what we do. I had my daughter four days before I started grad school. Mm-hmm. And so her little body was strapped to me and we were in class. And mm-hmm. so um we I got through um school psychology, got my um uh specialist certification and um an adaptive uh technology certification because they were doing that as well. Um, and I was a school psychologist full-time um, in North Carolina for 12 years. And then um, I wanted to be a counselor because what I was seeing a lot in meetings was that kids really needed more than we could give in schools. And so I wanted to do some counseling and testing was driving me nuts. 
because I was like, there's so much more that we could be doing for these kids other than testing them, especially when we know about the um, biases in these results. So I um, uh, started looking into becoming an LPC because that's what in North Carolina, what we originally were. Um, last year, they changed us to licensed clinical mental health counselors. So um, I started looking into that. I needed four classes. And so um, I took the classes at Grand Canyon University and um, that was a journey in itself, just like figuring out what school, I could take some online classes that were graduate because most of the time they want you to go get a whole other master's degree. And paying for it out of pocket was not cheap. The classes were probably about $1,700 a piece. And so it was, it was a journey in getting those done. And then I did the application process. And part of the reason why I wanted to do this is because as a black um, school psychologist, I had no idea what I was doing, trying to get this other license. And it was like bumping around in the dark. I couldn't ask anyone questions because when I would ask questions, I wasn't really getting answers. Um, there weren't people that looked like me who were doing this, especially as a school psychologist, like we're supposed to go for our LPA. So um, I went ahead and uh, got licensed as a licensed uh, LPC associate. And I looked for jobs for a while just to like get my feet in the door for private practice. And that was really hard. I couldn't find somewhere that would take an associate level because now as a group practice owner, I understand why. It's harder to fill up an associate level clinician and um, paneling with insurance is difficult as well because there's only, um, right now in North Carolina, um, the easiest ones to panel with are Blue Cross Blue Shield and um, Medicaid for um, um, an associate level clinician. So uh, I, a friend uh, got me in for an interview with a private practice and um, it was my last shot before I was about to go to the prisons and I was kind of not prepared for that. <laughs> so um, they gave me a shot. I got in there, did um, my hours. I found a supervisor um, who didn't work there. And that's another thing you need to make sure that you are on top of your supervision hours because there are people out there who are doing their hours and not getting credit because they're not meeting with their supervisor regularly enough. Um, and uh, that, was, that was an interesting journey also because I had no one else to ask about things like getting help with like learning how to format my notes, um, understanding um, the counseling just process because as a school psychologist, we don't really get trained in clinical counseling. It's mostly um, psychoed. So um, I did that for two years and I was full-time as a um, counselor for a year. And then I was like, this is eight to 10 hours of listening to people talk. And I was, I wasn't making as much money as I wanted to, to be comfortable. Um, so I decided to get my LPA because 
we can test. <laughs> we can test all day. <laughs> and so um, I took the EPPP, which I passed the first time. Um, it can be really difficult for um, to pass. I know some people who didn't pass, um, two doctoral level clinicians took the um, EPPP right before me and they failed it. So when I passed, they were kind of like, um, and I, I passed on the doctoral level. So I was, I um, felt really good about being able to um, pass it the first time. And then I um, went ahead and started testing. And technically when you start the application for the LPA, you can um, start testing from that moment, which is something that I did not know. Um, testing has its benefits in that um, it breaks up your day and it pays very well in lumps. So what you all are doing in the schools, you're getting paid a fraction of what you get paid outside of the schools. And you're not bound in the same way that you're bound in a school system because a lot of times you have to not say things, not make certain recommendations because you work for the school. Um, so after I got my LPA, I um, spent another year working for um, that group practice. And then I opened my own practice and I have been doing um, being a school psychologist, our license makes us very versatile. So um, they kind of closed the loophole to be a licensed clinical mental health counselor on us because now you have to graduate from an NCREP accredited school in order to get licensed as a clinical mental health counselor. Um, I am happy to be licensed as a clinical mental health counselor because I can get paneled with all insurances. I'm not an associate level. I'm fully uh, uh, licensed. As an LPA, I'm still considered an associate level psychologist. So there puts limitations on how I can be paneled um, and who I can bill. But if you are doing just private pay work, you're fine. Um, so right now, my practice, I have been doing that since 2019. I do some um, parent advocacy for special education. Um, I contract with group homes and um, because they have to be supervised by a psychologist and an LPA counts. Um, and I contract with um, autism clinics, because again, they have to be supervised by a psychologist. I do psychological evaluations and I do counseling because counseling is like really what I enjoy. And I've had an opportunity to be trained in uh, modalities that I wouldn't have had exposure to otherwise. And I've started bringing on other clinicians to help them to get out there and get some counseling under their belts. And um, I'm looking for some more psychologists <laughs> to do some testing. Cause right now I'm kind of, I, there's a lot of testing that I'm out there uh, being asked to do. I would imagine. I enjoy it. 
Yeah. I would imagine from the pandemic, we get a lot of us private psychological reports in the schools. So mm -hmm. yeah, I think, thank you so much for giving just your spill on um, how you made this journey to where you are today. I have a couple of questions. So the first question that I have has to do with the whole process of obtaining the um, LPA. And I know you talked about, you had some doctoral level psychologists who took it and they were not successful um, in their attempt. For me, when you were saying that, I was thinking about what I know about the EPPP. I think that's what it's called, right? Yes. Um, it, it requires you to have some background knowledge on not only kids, but also adults. And it also asks about what I've heard is it also asks a lot about the counseling and the different orientations and things like that. So for your background in counseling, was that helpful for you when it came time for you to take your um, EPPP and sit for so your EPPP? The EPPP covers every single thing in psychology, industrial organizational, psychopharmacology, statistics, um, diagnosis, um, everything, including schools, psycho, psychometrics, everything. So um, the other, I think the other leg up I had in taking the EPPP is I taught at community, community colleges um, for about 10 years. Um, so my first year being a school psych, I got a job um, part-time teaching at a community college. And I did that um, every year up until next last year when the pandemic started, because I didn't want to teach online. I love teaching in person. So um, uh, I one tip that people say is that if you read a general psychology book, you can pass the EPPP. Well, I've been teaching a general a variety of general psychology books for years. So when it came time to take the EPPP and to study, I went through the things that I already knew. And then I um, read through the things that I wasn't really all that familiar with. I made poster boards because I'm also a tactile and visual learner. Um, I made flashcards. I listened to study materials and tape on tape while I was driving. And I uh, took a lot of practice exams. So it, it takes over your life um, to pass the EPPP. And it is not a test that you can like cram for because it requires knowledge of all things psychology and it's application. It's not just remembering things. So it can be difficult, but um, it can be done. Lots of people pass it in. If you have anxiety, working with a therapist to help you to use, to learn coping skills during the test will also help. Yeah, so it, what I'm hearing from you is that it's a, just a general knowledge of psychology in all different disciplines. Yes. So it's a very comprehensive test yeah. um, that you will need to study for. Like, What was your study and I guess approach? Like, would you give any strategies or tips to people who are trying to pass the ECCP? So um, I had um, I had a, have a good friend who um, shared her study materials with me. Um, I don't even know what they were. They were just books. And so I read through them. The things that I wasn't sure about, I um, Googled and I read articles on. Um, 
And I made sure that I boned up on psychopharmacology because that is not something that is, I don't really have a, had, I didn't have a strength in that when it came to counseling or in school psychology because we didn't deal with those things. But as a psychologist in private practice, you should know the basics of pharmacology. Yeah. I, I would definitely agree. I think that as a private practice psychologist, you should know <laughs> these yeah. things that we probably yes. don't get trained on in just general yeah. school psychology programs. And well, in general, the practice tests, take lots of practice tests. The ones that you get wrong, make sure that you go over them, make sure you expand your knowledge on whatever that subject is and um, keep going with the practice tests. Okay, that's good. So what was the process like um, going from the EPPP to trying to, I guess, start, or if you were immediately wanting to start your own business? Were you working in the schools for a little bit, trying to get up some cash flow, and then went into um, private practice, or how was that process? So after I got my... Um, LPC or my LCMHC, I um, went for a full year, full-time private practice doing counseling. So um, I was already out of the schools. But um, in that year, uh, I got calls asking me if I'd be willing to help with help a group home, if I'd be willing to help um, and with an autism clinic. Um, and then I had parents coming to me for um, parent advocacy. And um, I also joined some listservs for private practice clinicians where people would post asking if someone could do a certain psychological, like do an evaluation for a certain uh, psychiatric diagnosis. And I would jump on them and be like, okay. <laughs> and so um, I was cash pay only at the time. So I would uh, take that cash and then either put it to the side as my cushion or buy a new test kit or buy um, um, access to a, an assessment that I would need um, moving forward so that by the time I went out on my own, I had a cushion. I also had some contracts with group homes, autism clinics. Um, yeah, I think that's all I had at the time. And then um, I just stepped out there and business has not slowed down. I think one of the things that I'm realizing is that business is popping in the mental health field right yes. now. Yes. You said that you needed more clinicians. And I also heard Miss um, Miss Reese on the recent podcast episode where we did the panel of women, different um, different areas, I guess, of school psychology also say that business is booming right now and they're also looking to expand. Um, so that's that's good to hear, but it's, it's good that people are aware that, you know, we need strategies to deal with our mental health. Um, mm -hmm. But it's also like, do we have enough clinicians and people who are able to do this work? That's what I was yeah. hearing from her too. And I think you were touching on that as well. So if you're going into school psychology or psychology in general, you should 
your outlook for your job growth should be really good. So that's good. Thank you for telling me about the EPPP and the process of you know getting started. It's glad that you had some leverage as far as your connections that you are able to use um, to get your businesses started. Um, yeah. Could you talk more about the administrative duties of owning a private practice? I know I know people want to hear about that. It's a lot. It is a lot. So you've got to learn how to balance the um, clients because we want to help as many people as we can. That also increases your income. But if you do not set enough time aside for the administrative work, you're not going to get paid. So, and you've also got to realize when you can't do it all. So right now, um, I am two years in and I've had to hire an accountant. Um, I have a bookkeeper because I don't silo my money with anybody because <laughs> there are going to be checks and balances here. <laughs> I have um, a virtual assistant who handles my calendar. She, she is amazing. Like I broke my ankle um, two months ago. And she made sure everything kept going for the month that I could not work. Um, I have a personal assistant who um, comes and she she's basically, she takes care of my personal life, which is fantastic. Um, and then um, I get to do the clinical work. And so that is, oh, and I have a biller. So you have to be willing to outsource the things that are not clinical. Otherwise, you are, number one, spending your time learning about things that are not your job. And if you find people who are trustworthy and who um, aren't price gouging you, um, you are able to like do the work and still be profitable and comfortable and um, just don't think that you have to do it all by yourself. That's when people feel like they're drowning. That's when they feel like um, they are burnt out. I can imagine. So definitely outsourcing helps um, so that you can focus on the things that you're passionate about, which is the clinical work. Um, yeah. yeah, it seems like you got pretty much a very large team there, but you also have another clinician working with you. Is that correct? Um, I have two. One is two. a school psychologist and then one is a, um, she is a school psychologist who um, I'm good friends with. And so she uh, followed me in the process of getting her LCMHC before mm -hmm. the loophole closed. Mm -hmm. So um, she is there. And then I have another clinician who's an LCMHC A. So both of them are associate levels. Okay, good. Yeah. So that's good. I think this whole school psychology OPA and then LMCA, it's an LC licensed clinical mental health. LCHA yeah. <laughs> is a good um, thing to go after if you want to kind of bridge the gap. Because I know that there are people in school psychology who are only trained to do the assessment and not so much the counseling piece. But if that is your passion, then you might actually want to go see where you can get some extra courses. Um, in order and to if do them. They, um, your board in your state allows it because mm -hmm. they shifted to make it so that 
you could only um, get licensed as a counselor if you came from a program that was accredited by NCREP. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that happened, I think, like two years after I started my process. Mm -hmm. So that kind of limited um, other people coming this route because there aren't that many people who are dually licensed as an LPA and LCMHC. Right, right, yeah. right. That's interesting. I wonder if you can like do it though with, I don't know, do you, do you have to get the master's or like could you do, because I know I took counseling courses in my um, school psychology program and I'm yeah. wondering how many more counseling courses that I need in order for me to probably go ahead with the counseling um, and the school psychology degree. So I think it's something to at least put in people's head like, hey, maybe you can get um, two specialist degrees or two masters. Yeah. You just have to make sure that um, your board allows it because some mm -hmm. of them have closed it so that it has to be a graduate of an NCREP program. Yeah, I think it's I think it's very interesting. And I think um, it's a it's definitely another way to kind of make sure you're not just you're kind of broadening your skills because you know I do know people who have private practice and they only test and they're comfortable with that. And if that's what you're comfortable with, then yes, do that. Now, I also want to know about the supervision. So how was that process of getting supervision? Do Is North Carolina still where you have to be supervised by a psychologist in order to have a private practice? Yeah, so they have... Um... This year, actually, they reduced some of the supervision. They're trying mm -hmm. to move towards um, removing lifetime supervision. Mm -hmm. But I actually like having supervision, and I really like having a supervisor because being in private practice, we don't have to engage with anyone else. And so with my supervisor, I, when I'm bouncing things off of her, she has um, more clinical experience than I do because we're school psychologists. So we do psychoed evaluations. The experience that I have um, gained in working in private practice when I was working with that group practice um, and with supervision helped me to expand my skill set quite a bit. So, um, I was able to um, take continuing education, take additional classes in um, clinical mental health diagnosis. And um, being able to be supervised by my supervisor helped me to really like hone my skill set when it comes to evaluations that are clinical rather than psychoeducational. Because a psychoeducational, we can get that done. But clinical is a little bit more nuanced in um, looking at symptomology and ruling out um, diagnosis. Yeah, I think it's valuable to have someone supervising you. Um, so what I'm hearing is that they're trying to lessen the hours in North Carolina. Yeah, definitely. Try, creeping towards trying to get rid of the lifetime supervision. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, but you still want to be in consult groups, mm -hmm. even if they did get away from supervision completely, because being alone out here, you don't know everything. 
Yeah. Oh, trust me. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Even after you get out of school, you're just still a little foggy. Exactly. <laughs> what you know about applying things. So I definitely get that. So how has it been? I guess what have been what has been the advantages and disadvantages of private practice work um, for you so far? Um, okay, so disadvantages uh, learning work-life balance because I work for myself. Um, when I first started, I was working until one o'clock in the morning, um, writing reports, doing notes, doing this, doing that, getting admin stuff done, and then starting work early or driving to uh, sites in order to do the supervision or do psychological evaluation. So I really had to learn some work-life balance when it came to that. Um, the advantages, we make our own schedule. Um, you get to decide what you enjoy and you get to develop your niche. Um, and the income is good. Yeah, in income is really good. <laughs> if you don't mind me asking for the people in the audience who would like to know, um, I don't know if you can do a comparison because you're really just working up to private practice anyway, but compared to what you would expect to make at the, within the school system, say in the large suburban district, how is the income in comparison to that um, salary, I guess, schedule is what we go by? Um, so last year I was a PLLC, which means that I was um, not an employee of my company. So whatever income came in was technically mine. So in terms of income before um, expenses and all of that, like three times what I made as a school psychologist. <laughs> so best. Yes, because I know, I know, I know. But okay, so there's also, now that I'm thinking about it, there's just a general worry about the clientele. So mm -hmm. how have you been able to bridge that gap? I know some people say, oh, I'm scared of going to private practice because I want, I don't want to just be able to treat kids who are able to afford private psychoeducational evaluations or private counseling like people want to serve underprivileged youth um what would you tell somebody who has that general fear um get paneled with medicaid that's one even when i leave other insurance panels i'm going to keep medicaid because that is where i give back and um I enjoy working um, with the clients that are referred to me through Medicaid. Um, um, I also do some pro bono um, when it's really evident that they need help, but they can't afford it. Um, so I have a couple pro bono slots per um, year. And then um, sliding scale as well. So sometimes someone will call me and tell me that they don't have um, insurance, and but they need this evaluation for either social security disability or um, they need it to qualify for additional supports and a cognitive assessment and adaptive are needed. And so I can figure out ways to help with that, but it's still a business. So you have to balance it out because 
all of the testing materials cost money in a way <laughs> that you're not really cognizant of when you're in the schools or when you work for someone else's group practice. Um, the time that's spent costs money because you're not doing something else with someone else. So it's just really a matter of balancing the giving back as well as like being able to feel as though you are helping the greater, um, greater good, I guess. My question would be um, just kind of actually going back to that whole paneling process. Cause I know that that is something that I've heard a lot of my clinician friends have difficulty with. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> so talk to me about your paneling process. I've heard you have to kind of sell yourself. Um, yeah, just talk to me about that. So I didn't really have any of that difficulty because I'd come from a group practice. So I was already paneled through the group practice. Um, I just had to um, set my business up as a group practice because I knew at some point I was going to expand. So um I set it up as a group practice and then I reached out to the panels and let them know some of them take longer. Medicaid is a longer one and it's really detail oriented. So you have to take the time to do it right. Um, Blue Cross Blue Shield also takes a while, but um, because I was paneled with the other insurance companies, um, some of them went by really quickly. And so I didn't really have to sell myself because I'd already been paneled. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. So you're saying you had a, you were already paneled within your previous group practice. Oh, so it's an individual. So, so paneling is, you know, new to me, obviously. So you get Mm -hmm. paneled as an individual, if that makes sense. So even if you're in like a group practice, the, the whole group doesn't get paneled at the same time. You as an individual have to get paneled. Is that okay, mm-hmm. so everyone, when you get into private practice, you have to get an NPI, which is a national provider um, identification. You get your individual NPI, but there's also a business NPI. So um, you get paneled under your NPI, but you're, um, in order to port your paneling to someplace else, you have to also have a business NPI to link it to. Because when you're billing, you're not just billing under your NPI, you're billing under your business. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. That's a whole conversation in itself. Just talking about this. In 2019, most of my time was figuring out the admin side. So I picked up a couple contracts. I did a little bit of private work, but I didn't start working for myself until full-time until January, 2021, no, 2020, because of all of the admin stuff that needed to be set up. So I know like, even with the nonprofit, it's, it's, it's a lot. So this, <laughs> this sounds like it's definitely worth the risk um, for the reward, but it does sound like you do have to do your own research and you do have to make sure your I's are dotted and your T's are crossed. Um, yes before you start your own private practice. And there are companies that will do your paneling for you, that will do all your business setup for you, but they cost a lot of money for things that are typically free. 
So if you have the ability to like spend the time really researching and making sure that you know what the process is and following up and asking questions and calling people, then I would do it myself because it, it, I was able to. I just have heard some nightmares about going with companies, paying a lot of money, them not really following through <laughs> with getting it done and it just being a longer process. Well, yeah, all of this was good. And um, the last thing I guess I wanna know is how in the world <laughs> do you maintain your work-life balance <laughs> when you're in private practice? Like what, strategies do you have tips and tidbits that you can give the audience for like hey if you want to do this yes you have to be dedicated but you also have to reserve some some time so um one of the things i definitely do is every six weeks i take a week off um and i go someplace that's not my house because otherwise i would spend the time doing stuff in my house um, <laughs> um get help so um, I have my uh, personal assistant, like she runs errands for me. She um, takes my daughter places when I need it, um, when I'm working. Um, my virtual assistant handles all of my admin because I get phone calls from clients all the time or I'll meet with them the first time. And they're like, I love that you're administrative assistant handles everything like the process is smooth she answers questions she, we can't do that while we're working and before I hired her I was struggling to return phone calls to send emails to answer questions and that your business is your name and so there it, it was a lot so hiring the right people who are dependable and trustworthy. That's another thing I have learned is when you need to fire someone, fire them. <laughs> because <laughs> that's how you maintain balance. You cannot be hiring people that you have to go behind to fix everything, like it or check to see if they got it done. You cannot balance. Um, make sure that your schedule is planned so that like you have room for your kids if you have kids you have room for self-care um and um what else i so for me i start my days at 9 a.m um in the middle of the day because most people can't have appointments um in the middle of the day for counseling or testing um i take a two to three hour break to do meetings, reports. Um, one of those hours is for me to go for a walk and just like decompress, eat lunch, take care of myself. And um, the other times are just to take care of admin work, um, do meetings, um, do notes, return phone calls, um, check in with uh, people that I need to. So that has helped. And then, um, two days a week. I work until um, six or seven o'clock. Yeah, sounds like a really good plan. Like you said, get support. Yes. <laughs> and get support. That's dependable. That's good. Yes. Um, kind of seems like scheduling your day out has helped and worked for you. Um, mm -hmm. 
I really feel that administrative assistant, we had an administrative assistant in our, my internship office. And I mean, I spend so much time now with my own paperwork. It's just like ridiculous and taking away from my job. So Missy was great. Like she was, she was amazing. So I definitely, I definitely feel that like and fire people when you need to fire people. Um, yeah, I learned that because <laughs> I was like, I am asking multiple times for the same thing and it's still not taken care of and there's so many errors and, but I, I have a really good team now. Thanks for tuning in and I hope you caught some gems from today's show. If you really liked our show, please make sure to subscribe and share the link with a friend. To offer feedback or pose insightful questions, I'd welcome you to submit a voice message on our profile or email schoolsitesisters at gmail.com. Our social media platforms are at schoolsitesis on Twitter and at schoolsitesisters on Instagram. If you identify as a woman of color in the field of school psychology, we do welcome you to our online community through Facebook. Thanks once again for listening in to Dear School Psych Sister. We hope to see you next time.